Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother Michael to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll be diving into the chapters we're discussing today and those we read before, but the only spoilers beyond the chapters we discuss will come from Michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV show, which he watched a decade ago. Today we're discussing Cat 7 and Tyrion 7 of A Game of Thrones. How's it going, Michael? Hello! How you doing, Dan? Is that back to your Dan impersonation from last? Oh week? yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what's funny is it only lasted about ten seconds on the uh, on the recording, but there was like a good six minutes of it. Yeah, we're gonna have to use that audio elsewhere. You know, I uh, I had no idea it happened until I was doing the editing <laughs> and uh, and had a nice hearty laugh to myself. Black wings, black news, as I like to say. I'm not sure that applies here, but sure. But is it the right quote? Yeah, no, you nailed it. Killing uh, it. Actually, no, dark wings, dark words. God, no, damn it. I'm harming it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got a couple of chapters that we read, I think, uh, that, that we're going to talk about. You sound not too excited about them again. Well, I, I will say that uh, it's a war that starts with a whimper and not a bang. Yeah, you know, we don't jump into the battles. Uh, we get to see a little bit of the planning. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like sitting in the, the room. Planning just as exciting as the fighting, Michael. It's kind of like being in the room with the finance manager who's helping someone plan on how they're going to spend their money. Yeah, you know, wars are won by logistics and supply trains. This is just this is the really exciting material that actually goes to victory. Did you say supply trains? I said supply chains. I think you said trains. Okay, well, you know, if they're using trains, then fine. If they carry supplies, it's a supply train. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Any the train can be a train. The point is, we spend a, a good amount of time in some offices, these couple of chapters. Yeah, that's true. And that's what happens. They they talk <laughs> in offices. Uh, but But it's fun to see some characters we haven't seen in a while. Yeah, it's good to jump back on the horse or donkey, if you will, or Dip, goat, or or goat. Stay away but, from the goats. Yeah, uh, Chella and Stroma. What? I don't know. They're character names. They talk about goats. It, Shaga likes the goats. Shaga. Yeah, and Chella. Chella. Yeah. Give me a chill. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Dan. We're jumping in. I'm tired of this. Uh, the point is, is that. Like, big level in the story, high level in the story, Robert Baratheon, dead. Ned Stark, captured. Sansa, kind of kind of ditzy, kind of like a bimbo. Uh, really excited to make babies with Joffrey, more than she cares about anything else. Sansa, in the wind, no one knows. That's Arya. Arya is also in the wind. In fact, not also, she is the one that's in the wind. There you go. Edit that. Uh, nope. Arya, Arya is in the wind. Uh, Rob Stark is up in the north gathering the banners of and, Stark. And marching people. south. He's marching south. Bran is still up in the north, bored out of his mind. Catelyn, who we're going to see today, we find out about, and we find out about Tyrion as well. We do know that the Lannisters have started embarking on their sort of battle attempts. You know, they're 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 moving forward. They're armed. And doing what they do. Yeah, and, and so are the Starks there. Yeah, this is the first time we're seeing Kat since she left the Vale. The Vale. And uh, the first time we're seeing Tyrion similarly since he left the Vale. The we saw him in the mountains meeting some unwashed masses. Yeah, I uh, I respect that. COVID did that to me. Yeah. 
We've all been there. Yeah. So why don't you take us away, Cat 7? Cat 7. Uh, we start with Cat, and I'll, I'll be honest, it's been a while since we've been with Cat, and I have no idea who these people are. Uh, yeah, we, uh, we hit fast forward a little bit, and she's got some new friends. She's got some new friends. Cat, we start the chapter opening on Cat coming into Rob Stark's camp. Yes. After he left from last chapter, Winterfell. So he's a little further south. They're at a place that I can't remember the name, but it's the three towers that once were 20. Yeah, so it's it's called Moat Kaelin, which we've heard of a few times before. This is the castle, really ruined castle, that sits on the neck, which is the narrow entry point to the north. So Rob is not just a little south. He's actually all the way through the north already. And he is sitting here at what is effectively the, the defensive choke point for mm-hmm. the north, waiting for the last group to arrive, which is primarily the Manderleys, who Kat is is coming in with. The Manderleys are a house uh, of a town really close to a city called White Harbor, which is on the east coast of the north. And that's like the entry point, the easiest way to get in by boat. So that's how how Kat got here from the Vale. We do have, and I actually really like this too, because some of what you were saying comes out in exposition between Catelyn and these two men that she's with, one being Sir, Sir Willis Manderley, the other being another Manderley, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's uh, Willis and Wyman is their dad. And Willis and Wendell. Wendell, yes, thank you. And I actually really love the description of them. They're <laughs> the two fattest men Cat has ever met if she hadn't just met their father, who's even fatter, which is why he's not with them. And they have walrus mustaches and shaved heads. And I just imagine like a, a Tweedledee and Tweedledum from the weird Tim Burton, yeah. Johnny Depp, Alice in Wonderland. They like made the big overgrown babies. I, my, my first thought was the, uh, the evil bad guy, the professor from uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. Mm. But I will say that in that exposition, they, they're quick to point out, wow, this this stronghold looks pretty weak. This is all that's left from yeah. these 20 towers. And she says exactly what you said. It's, uh, specific, it, notably, it's not the northerners who say this. It's actually the blackfish who's coming here for the first right. time. So he's from the south. And Kat says, yeah, I had the same thought when I got here for the first time, too. And he's there also, right? There's there's three of them plus Catelyn. It's yeah. Willis, Wendell, Blackfish, and Catelyn. Yeah, so so he left the Vale. We saw that in her last chapter that he said, I'm going to come with you instead because Lysa's off her meds. Yeah, she she's a little batty. <laughs> yeah, he uh, she forbade him from bringing an army to their cause. And so mm-hmm. he said, OK, I quit and I'm going with Catelyn instead. I quit. I'm out of here. You can't fire me. I'm going with Catelyn. Yeah. No, I don't even want severance. Uh, anyway, so they get there. there. There's a good amount of conversation. And we learn we learn a lot. The Similar, basically repeating what you said. But here you have Wendell and whatever his name is, Willis, Willis and Wendell. The Manderleys are coming. With their men, Blackfish is there. Catelyn decided to tag along. She wanted to meet up with Rob, her son, who's there. Uh, here's all these banners. And Catelyn has this, this happens throughout the chapter where Catelyn plays almost a dual role uh, as we get to see in her thoughts. Yeah. One is like like woman of Stark. <laughs> like, I don't know how else to say it. She is, she is known as a leader. She's known to be the wife of the head of the family of the North. And she's holding that stature in that position. The other is, is we get some nice emotion from her that has mm-hmm. to do with her son. Rob's 15. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, and she's both concerned and proud. Here he is leading leading the men. She's even thinking about it from afar. And it's it's really sweet to see that. Yeah, there, there are a couple of quotes that make the rounds from George R. R. Martin 
like I've said before, I don't know as much as many other fans on the front of things he said outside of the books, but these are ones that are famous enough that I've heard them, where when talking about what he wanted to do with the fantasy genre, there are two primary things that make it sound horribly boring, but I actually think is some good insight <laughs> into what he's doing. The first one, which is irrelevant to this, is uh, Lord of the Rings ends with and, and Aragon ruled for 120 years, I think it was, and he mm. ruled well, and he was a great king, and everything was wonderful. George R. R. Martin was like, that's crap. Bringing king is hard. What was Aragorn's tax policy? And who did it piss <laughs> off? Like, I want to know about that. And then the other one, which is the reason why I bring it up now, is he said, I wanted to know what King Arthur's mom was thinking. Like, oh, what's going on in her head as her son becomes this legendary hero, ruler of the world, uh, and going off on these dangerous adventures and battles and things like that? Let's see from, from within her mind. So, you know, from that perspective, it's notable that we have not had a Rob point of view, but we very much so get Kat's view of watching him succeed and the pride and strength that comes from that combined with the terror yeah, I like that. I think those are interesting perspectives, except the first one about like tax policy. Well, he, it's, funny the way he it. it's funny the way he said it, but he was saying, you know, I want to see the political intrigue, which is, of course, what we get in this series. And in terms of how you make allies and enemies and how you go about that, uh, it's not really a happily ever after. And then everything worked out sort yeah, of. Yeah, which is fair. And where, where interesting stories are told. So I, I can't give him too much, too much crap on that. Yeah, I suppose this book might take off soon and people might find out about it and yeah. enjoy it for whatever yeah, reason. You don't want to be on the record being against it when that happens. Uh, we have this little retinue of uh, Catelyn and her three men. And uh, they see that of the three buildings that are still kind of standing here at Moot Kaelin, uh, the Karstark sunburst hangs from one tower. Uh, the Great John's giant. Uh, chained giant. Yeah. Chained giant. Great John's chain giant hangs from another, and the Stark banner really flies alone on the center one. Yeah, so I think it's it's notable uh, that those two houses seem to have claimed two of the standing towers, just because we had the kind of maneuvering in Brand's last chapter of mm -hmm. who would get leadership positions, and so it seems like this is maybe uh, two houses that Rob has decided to honor. I do want to want to briefly touch on you referenced the description of this castle. It's really a ruined castle because it was built on a bog mm. uh, is what's going on here, which I think is interesting. So the soil is very wet. It's very moving. Uh, it is moving a lot, not very moving. Uh, but we have the gatehouse tower, which is generally fine. The drunkard's tower, which is leaning off to one side, looks like it's going to fall over. And the children's tower, which is missing half its crown and looks as though, and this is a quote, a great beast had taken a bite out of the crenellations and scattered the results across the bog. She describes it as immense blocks of black basalt lay scattered and tumbled like a child's wooden block. So I just really like that video. Uh, excuse me. I really like that visual. You're drunk. A little bit. Yeah, drunk. We also get a reference here that is called the Children's Tower because the children of the forest had used it to summon the Hammer of the Waters, which we have not heard of before, but that's a little piece of legend. Um, but crucially, Brynden says, like we just mentioned, this looks like crap. How is this like the mighty stronghold that protects the North? Yep. And Cat explains, like Nat, Ned explained to her once upon a time uh, that this setup, all of the towers are visible from the others. So any enemy needs to go wade through the bog while they're getting pelted with rocks and shot with arrows from the other ones. And uh, and it makes it pretty impossible to assault head on. I actually really like that comment. You, you just quoted it right there, but that Ned had told her once. And I just think that like, again, we've talked about this before, but like, this is not a time of mass communication. This is not a time of quick communication. The fact is, is that, you know, not every wife of every character that we've met, but like 
wives in general are part and party to what mm-hmm. their husbands are doing if their husbands let them in. Catelyn clearly was let in. Absolutely. She understands like strategic situations and the strategic setup of what, what exists. You can also think from a military perspective, since that's what we're doing here, that is probably not widespread that this is somewhat of a ruin. Mm-hmm. Obviously, everyone knows this is the castle that the North uses to protect itself. But if what you want is to dare people to come and attack these towers so that you can destroy the decimate the army as it's going about it, then what better way for them to show up and say, oh, people said this was a crazy fortress and in fact it's destroyed. And then they charge off into the bog and end up getting destroyed. Uh, So that's probably worked to their advantage a few times. With all this said from the outside, Catelyn makes her way inside with her uh, with her friends, with these men that are with her. Uh, and she finds her son surrounded by his father's lord's bannerman. He's in war council. He is talking turkey. Yep. As they say. I got nothing to say to that. Uh, <laughs> but with that said, she walks in. It's, it's it's actually a sweet moment. They really haven't seen each other in a long time. Uh, we have this wonderful moment where, you know, he's so invested and so is everyone else in these conversations. Really, it's Grey Wolf, his dire wolf, who's the first to notice her and really make his way over. Yeah. And slowly others see her there as well, him, Rob included, her son. Uh, and they start to make way uh, and, and sort of, I, I don't know if this is extreme to say this way, but pledge fealty. I mean, they go down on one Absolutely. knee. It's a really sweet moment of acknowledging the lady of the house and 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 who she is. Yeah, you know, her, her husband, the Lord, rules their region. So so does she. Uh, and even with all the, the gender dynamics that we have going on in this world, they do owe her fealty and they, uh, they show that here. Um, one by one, they each come to her, we hear. Um, and uh, this is the beginning, really, of that emotion that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, one of the first ones. Catelyn wanted to run to Rob, to kiss his sweet brow, to wrap him in her arms and hold him so tightly that he would never come to harm. But here in front of his lords, she dared not. Um, so this is that that push and pull where now he has to be a leader. And, and to be a leader, he needs to stop being her baby. I feel like she does something really smart here, which is uh, while they do have a, a brief conversation, she quickly moves to say, I'd like to speak to my son alone. Uh, yeah, and, I love uh, the way she does it too. Yeah, she she really does not leave them an opportunity to to protest. Uh, I know you will forgive me, my lords. It's just kind right. of laying down the law, and that's where you really see it. the the deft maneuvering of somebody who has a has practice in these matters. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but I think that goes well, just off of exactly what you were saying and what we talked about at the beginning. This is a chapter where she has. To call it a conflict is maybe overstating it, but she's conflicted. The, it's the 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 side of being that caring and doting mother and and wanting to protect her son, and then the other side of being understanding the situation and wanting to promote her son and saying yes, he is going to lead this. Right. And I just thought it was there was an opportunity here for a lot of the conversations that will happen behind closed doors between her and Rob and Theon because she mm-hmm. keeps him there uh but no, he, uh, she kicks him out we'll get to that oh I'm so sorry I must have misread that we'll get to that in a second he, like he tries to linger and she says no you too oh I thought so that he was saying the, you yeah, stay I thought it was the opposite. Um, o- opposite which makes sense because he doesn't say a word that's no, not says like Theon I but with that said I you know basically by getting uh, there was an opportunity here for this story to go that she kind of undermines her son a little bit right. out of care out of love She's a little, you know, she wants to protect him and she starts to kind of give him some snark, not snark per se, but like give him some advice in front of everybody. And she really moves to not do that. She's very aware of the situation Absolutely. and that he's there as a leader. 
Before we get rid of the Lords, just a couple of notes from the conversation before they leave. Uh, Rob asks after Sir Roderick, who was Kat's riding companion the whole time before. Mm -hmm. And she shares that she sent him back to Winterfell to rule and to be Castellan, uh, which is kind of like the military outpost there because they're moving into a war uh, uh, stance. And Maester Lewin does not have experience with he's that. He's a smart man, but not a not a military man. Yeah, he's a knight of the mind, as he said last week, which remains super lame. A knight uh, of the mind. And uh, and we get a great little colorful response from Lord Umber, the great John here. And he says, that's no, no not necessary. You don't have to worry about Winterfell. Winterfell is safe. We'll shove our swords up Tywin Lannister's bunghole soon enough, begging your pardons. And then it's on to get the Red Keep to free Ned, uh, which, yeah, all right. If I can, I'd actually like to, in our next chapter that we'll read in just a moment, the Tyrion chapter, uh, I want to come back to that line. There, there's a bravado happening here yeah. that I think is fun to point to, and that and that very much. Absolutely. Happens. We also get a, a brief moment with Roose Bolton, who we have not heard a ton about, except that he scared Rob in Bran's chapter last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Roose asks if she still has Tyrion. Cat explains that Lysa sucks and that she does not. But we get this description from her as well of Roos. He has a small voice, but people quiet down to listen to him. Mm-hmm. His eyes were curiously pale, almost without color, and his look disturbing. So just again, a similarly eerie vibe from what Rob was expressing before. We're now seeing that from somebody a little older here. And I will say, too, that the question of does she still have Tyrion and her answer of she does not is a deflating moment. Yeah, uh, everyone was really Bad excited. War effort yeah, right there. like to have a Lannister and especially like son of Tywin uh, in in chains would have been a huge win and a huge sort of bargaining chip here. And she doesn't. And yeah. she even goes to say enough to herself, even like it's not for her to besmirch her sister. Although we find out more information. (laughs) She does, but we even find out more information that she basically, you know, her sister's really nice. When she was leaving, she said, well, maybe, maybe your child would do best coming to Winterfell and spend time with other children. And her sister basically likes it to her around and is like, I will will kill you. you. I will throw you (laughs) out the moon. Murder you. you. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. She's, uh, I think Kat was ready to get out of there. Safe to say. Safe to say. Indeed. Uh, Anyway, but as you were saying, there is this conversation. There's, there is this tete-a-tete if you will of the lords that are there before she kind of asked them to leave we find out a little more sort of situational strategy that's going on uh what's happened with Tyrion, the fact that they don't have him and now she kind of says it's time for me to talk to my son don't let the door hit you everybody get out and as i just learned theon also has to leave yes so it's just her and rob um this is uh, not technically a long moment, but there's a nice moment that they have together. This situation, this scene. Yeah, it's the it's really the rest of the chapter here. Yeah, uh, which I'm going to blow through. Okay. Uh, they there's a lot of really nice things that happen here. We continue to see this contrast and inner conflict from Catelyn in a nice way. Here's her son, and here's the the leader. And what does that mean? She gives him a little bit of grief. Why the heck are you here? You're a child. Yeah. You should not be here. There are so many people here to lead. Uh, and he also, it's fun to see him. She she points out that Which he's- is, That's the same thing uh, Lewin and Bran both separately mm-hmm. said last time too, that we're now he's getting it from all sides. You did not have to be the one to command this. I will add that unlike last chapter where Lewin and Bran were saying this, we are reminded of his age. He is 15. Mm-hmm. 
which I know we've talked about age before, yeah, but, but still, even very 17 young. or 18, I mean, like very, very young and very inexperienced. Catelyn's quick to bring up, you know, only a year ago you were playing with wooden swords. Like, yeah. are you ready? In the book, time? we saw it. With that said, she also understands that, you know, because he asks, he says, are you sending me home? He he kind of, he even though he's in this position of leadership right now, if his mom was about to say, you go home now, yeah. I'm assigning somebody else, he's going to defer to her. I think it's really cool to see that from him, his side as well. Uh, obviously, we're in Kat's head here, and so we have the conflict from her perspective. But it's very clear throughout this conversation that Rob is not yet ready to assert authority over his mother, mm-hmm. uh, which is another emphasis of how young he is, that he has been thrust into this position of authority. He is in command here and really turns to her and leans on her for advice, including up to being open to the possibility of hurt entirely and fully undermining him in a way that maybe somebody five, six years older would not have allowed uh, and would not have been open to. It's interesting to hear her response. He says to her, like, are you going to send me home now? And, and in a sort of like deflated way, I understand. I get it. I guess I was wrong. Are you sending me home? And she says, no, I can't do that. You've come far already. And it would be a, it would be a shame to send you back. She also says a, a line that I really like, which is laughter is poison to fear. Yes. And this is following the, what she's saying, which is that there may come a time that these men need to fear you. And if I send you home now, it'll just make them laugh at you. Yeah. You, you're going to, even if it wasn't today, someday in your life, you're going to need to be their leader. And, uh, and, and you can't look cowed by your mother at 15 because they'll remember that when you're 30. We have, from that moment, Catelyn gets into, hmm, I'll refer to it as battle mode. She's now sort of saying, okay, I'm swallowing this emotional moment. Give me I info. Like, let's Let talk. help prep. Yep. This is a duel again. There sort of seems to be two factors to this. One is she wants to hear the information uh, and be part of what's going on. Mm-hmm. The other is it's almost a little bit of a test for Rob. She wants to know is he really doing this? Yeah, is he ready? Is he actually, and he seems to be. He's quick to announce that there are letters. He got two letters, one for her, one that was Sansa's letter. And I think the other one is from Sansa as well. They're honest. both from Sansa. So we knew that they had sent four out, one mm-hmm. to Hoster, Tully, and River Run, Lysa, Kat, and Rob, which was confused. I mean, they didn't know it, but obviously Lysa and Kat were together at the time. Mm-hmm. Kat left before they arrived there and Kat showed up at Winterfell. So Rob had both hers and his. But he did not bring hers. He didn't realize he'd be meeting yeah. with her, but he does share the one that he received from Sansa. Her response to it is similar to Rob's, which is, what is this bullshit? Yeah. Uh, she's quick to point out that these are Cersei's words. Sansa's a captor, a captive. Yeah. There's no mention of Arya, which I know, is frightening. I know the sound of a threat even whispered. They have Sansa hostage and they mean to keep her, which is exactly right and exactly why everybody wishes she still had Tyrion. Exactly. Uh they they get into some real specifics about what the battle plans are. I am not gonna go into them. There's something about going on two sides of a river. Do you want to talk yeah, about this? Yeah, no, let bit? me cover this because this is important here. Uh so first of all, before we get to that, Rob asks if the veil is gonna come help and mentions that he had written to Lysa Aaron, which is just another reminder that this was an expected part of their coalition, was yeah. part of the coalition uh 15, 18 years ago against the Mad King. And Kat confirms she she is not gonna be coming out. Uh we also have a, a quick discussion where Rob expresses fear. He's really worried about it. Uh, the the Starks we know have eighteen thousand men because we were talking about size of armies recently. 
And uh, and she sees that he's he's kind of being like a kid, and and she kind of takes this moment to put her emotion aside and buck him up. Uh, Rob explains he's worried that even if he wins the battles, they're going to execute Sansa and Ned. Mm-hmm. And Cat explains, no, that's actually not the value of the hostage. The value of the hostage is if things start to turn against you, you can use them as part of a settlement for peace and kind of protect your power and protect your authority separate from that. And so, as long as we remain a threat, as long as we matter militarily the hostages will get to live. Uh, but she does tell him, yeah, if you lose, we're all fucked. We're we all die. dead. Yeah, like they're, they're losing is not an option here. You have risen in rebellion against the throne. You cannot stop at this point. And I'll stress too that during that, con- early in that conversation, when, when Rob finds out that Lysa and the Vale is not going to be able to come, he becomes not just more childish, but he becomes really worried in terms of responsibility. I told these men to follow me so far, mm-hmm. all that are here with the expectation that more would be joining us it and sounds they're like not. they're not. Yeah. What have I done? Have I convinced them the wrong way? Yeah, absolutely. We get this quote from her about the, the possibility of losing and particularly losing to the Lannisters, which I think is is great. They say there is not but stone at the heart of Casterly Rock. Remember the fate of Rhaegar's children. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is kind of her channeling Ned a little bit in terms of how important of a moment that was for him. Uh, it kind of feels like probably wasn't something he talked about a ton with her, but this is she has a similar outlook on the world to, to him and, and nonetheless ended up at that point on her own. Um, but so at this point, we we get details on the fighting from the Stark side. Although I will interrupt his response to that is then I'm not going to lose. He gets, he bucks, it does buck him up. Yeah. He is understanding the sort of moral, like honor that he stands for here. We don't kill children. We will not let right. children die. Yeah. I'm not going to lose. Yeah. And it's, it's nice to see Kat as a mother knowing what will work with her, her son, mm-hmm. what will make mm-hmm. him get inspired and make him feel better and what won't. Um, so anyway, she, she asks to hear how have things been going so far? And it turns out things are going very, very poorly in the Riverlands for her family, for the Tullys and for the River Lords. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a battle at the Golden Tooth, which we know is kind of the entry point across a river from the West into the Riverlands. So obviously this was a, a crucial defensive location for them. Uh, Jamie routed Lord Vance and Lord Piper, whose sons we met when they came to the throne room mm-hmm. uh, with the peasants to petition in front of Ned. Uh, Lord Vance is dead. Lord Piper fled back to River Run with Jamie chasing him. And this is who Ned sent out to kill Gregor. No, no these are different people. Yeah. So these are the lords. We met sons of those lords who were knights who were around that area as well, but okay. they not in the same group. Gotcha. Uh, this was who... Uh, Edmure had stationed at the border. Right, 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 right. right. Uh, and then on top of that, Tywin actually has a second bigger army, which is coming around from the south. So we have this river that comes and connects into the Trident. It's one of the three things that all merge together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's going south of that tributary and hooking around into the Riverlands from that direction. Okay. Uh, and then they bring up what Ned had done. Uh, Rob says Ned must have known something about what was coming. He sent men under Lord Eric or Derek or something like that, which disrespect out of control, uh, along with a river lord named Raymond Derry, who, of course, we have met. And uh, and this was one of the people who came before the throne room. And this is the contingency that Ned sent to get exactly. Gregor 
to, to, to arrest Gregor Clegane. Mm-hmm. Rob sees this as, as a military tactic. You right. know, he was sending them out as part of this war, which is not the case. Uh, but regardless, the same group. Right. Uh, turns out, though, this group crossed the Mummers Ford, which must be a crossing on one of the rivers somewhere. Turns out it was a trap. Gregor Clegane was there waiting for them, fell on them from behind, killed a ton of them, including Sir Raymond and most of the Winterfell men that were with the group. But Lord Derek may have escaped with a couple of others. Uh, so Tywin is still pushing north, making his way along the King's Road and burning as he goes. And I will say, because it's only lightly touched here, and we'll talk more about it on the next chapter just now, uh, in, like in a moment, but it was a trap. Like, there, there's a almost like a, a strategic one step ahead that the Lannisters seem to have right now. At all moments, like they expected what Ned's reaction was yeah. to well, the sending... Well, that's that's an open question for me. Was it that they did some of those initial stages to prompt that sort of response under the king's banner? Or was it that Ned made an announcement in the throne room, this is what I'm doing, and so they mm. had time to prepare for it? I mean, either okay. way, it works yeah. out similarly. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, but it, it's it's not clear to me, you know, how far, quite how far they are uh, ahead of the Starks there. Gotcha. So uh, all of this is all good, and Cat turns to, okay, what's next? With Lord Tywin marching north along the King's Road, uh, do you plan to sit here at the neck in the defensive position and wait for him? And Rob says, no, that's not going to be an option. Uh, first of all, Tywin's smart enough as a military leader that he's not going to come to Moat Kaelin, which is known as this incredibly difficult place to assault. Uh, we're going to have to march south. It's also really important, just as we were talking about the supply trains, Michael. The supply trains. You cannot sit around in one spot with a peasant army. They're going to get antsy. They're going to want to leave. And there just isn't enough food to feed them. So they have to keep moving. Chew, 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 chew. Uh, Really makes you wonder how the Riverlands are going to do through all of this with a bunch of foreign armies coming in, living off the land, as they're discussing. Uh, and living off the land is often quite a violent approach to things mm. historically. So, so probably not a great sign that even the Starks have the same plan. So that doesn't really answer the question. They're going to march south, but, you know, doesn't really say exactly how. And Rob shares, you know, here's what my lords are telling me. The great John wants to rush up on Tywin and surprise him. The Glovers and Karstarks say go around him and join up with Edmure at River Run against Jamie, uh, which he's also worried about because that will put him between the two armies and doesn't seem like the best move. He he really doesn't know what to do. To which Catelyn once again says, be certain. You named yeah. yourself Battle Commander. What do you want to do? You do it. You need to make a choice. And, and, you know, I think this is a great lesson on leadership here. Uh, it's really important to be able to listen to people, to be able to take advice and use your counselors appropriately. But at the end of the day, it's on him to make a decision and stand by that decision. And if you don't feel confident, you better at least look confident. <laughs> uh, Fake it till you make it. Yeah. And, and this works for Rob. He says, okay, here's what I've got so far. Tywin has more men than I do, uh, just in that army, and far more cavalry. Uh, and unlike the Great John, he really doesn't think Tywin can be surprised. This is mm-hmm. it's a famously talented military commander. He really doesn't think rushing in on him and taking him by surprise and winning that way is an option. Right. Uh, which is nice to see, because that feels like the stupid, you know, first-time mistake people like to make. Instead, he's going to split his army. So uh, you need to think in your mind, the location that we're at, we're at the top of the north. There is a river, one of those three legs of the trident that comes up almost to the north. So they're kind of above it, effectively, at least above where it's a full river uh, and, and to the east of it. 
And so what they're going to do is they're going to come down uh, and split the army. The foot, which is the bulk of the army, the infantry is going to continue marching south and really look like the primary army, if not the entire army. Meanwhile, the horse and the cavalry is going to go cross at the twins, which is controlled by Lord Frey, who is one of the river lords. And, mm -hmm. and Rob kind of references him. We can rely on him uh, to, to be loyal to us. And we're going to cross. And that way we'll be on the West Bank. And I think, doesn't doesn't Catelyn even make a comment about Lord Frey? Yes. Uh, Catelyn says, don't trust him. My, my father never trust him. You shouldn't either. Right. Um, but we're going to cross. We're going to be on the west bank of the river while Tywin is ma marching north along the east bank of it. So he's going to have a river between us with the only crossing controlled by somebody on our team. And then we're going to rush as fast as we can down to River Run to meet up with Edmure there and beat Jamie before reinforcements can come from Tywin, who now has a river between them. So that's the strategy of it that uh, that I thought it was important to really cover because that it, it does explain how he's going to mitigate the numbers advantage that the Lannisters have. And in particular, by trying to meet up with the Riverlands armies, really try and put himself on, on more even footing with them. Right. I, I will say that there's a, not that I am any great strategist when it comes to military anything, but there's something that Rob touches on that I don't think he leans into enough, which is just how well the Lannisters seem to be doing right now and how strong they are as armies. There's a comment that actually happens earlier in this chat, not too much earlier, but throughout this conversation that Catelyn sort of thinks to herself, which is the fact is, is that these armies that are, are here under the banners, the Stark sort of aligning with Starks, these are not like army armies. These are locals who are uh, like swearing their allegiance and coming out there, but they're local folk, mm -hmm. you know, and, and they're not trained soldiers consistently. It's better for them to be in motion to the hold positions. They want to go back home eventually. Right. So I do think that's true for the Lannister army too, in terms of who it's made up of. Yeah. They have more of the professional soldiers. Yeah. But you have to think of this in terms of a feudal society. The feudal societies historically just did not have standing armies like that because the kings could not afford them. What you had was you had peasants who you give a weapon of some kind and mm -hmm. you call everybody up when you have to ride off to battle. And then you had knights and the knights had armor and swords and horses. And having more knights is obviously a good thing, but the bulk of the army is made up of these foot soldiers. I suppose that the big question in my mind right now though is that like so so thinking from a modern day context more often than not if you're not the established established formal army it's guerrilla warfare right like there there's hide amongst the locals and jump out and you know kind of get as you can and almost in a i don't mean to make this political right but like in a terror terrorist Absolutely. style yeah i wonder if there's again that stark hubris of we're armies and we're doing this you know, and we can we can fight it in battle. I will say that to your point, this was a different time. You know, there's a, there there's a way to fight wars. And no, I think I think you're absolutely right. Maybe this didn't occur to them because it's not something that happens, mm -hmm. or maybe it's that they didn't want to do it. Right. But when you ha are at a numbers disadvantage, maybe it's time to think of, hey, how could we do this differently? Yeah. And that's exactly how you know somebody did it first uh, in modern times, yeah. or, or somebody <laughs> did it, you know, first in in living memory. Uh, where they said, we don't have the numbers to go line up. I mean, you can think about the the American Revolution, where the Brits were ready to line up in a field somewhere near the town, and yeah. that was not the way the Americans were going to play it, because they knew they would lose doing that. Um, and, and so it's just, a, it's just a different style of warfare, but you're right. Uh, 
Rob instead comes up with a different plan on how to mitigate the numbers advantage. We need to link together with the Riverlanders who seem to be kind of on the run, kind of scattered. We have to be able to sweep them together into something concrete. And we need to avoid going head to head with the bigger army that's commanded by the better general, which mm -hmm. is Tywin's force. So to do both of those things at once, we're going to go rush to fight Jamie while distracting him separately, distracting Tywin separately with a tantalizing target of the infantry so that he doesn't come from behind us and, and crush us alongside Jamie. I'll add to just to throw in, because throughout this chapter, as these conversations are going on between Rob and Catelyn, is Catelyn's continued inner monologue of this is her son. Look at how well he's doing at this, his thoughts here, but also trying to prop him up. She doesn't want to directly contradict anything that he's saying, but she wants to say things to help him understand things from her perspective. Yeah. So she leads him in there and it's a really, and a really wonderful. This next way. part is just so perfect for this. I love this. Yeah. Say it. Is this the great John part? In the yeah. Yeah, so, so he, she's happy so far and actually specifically thinks Ned taught him well, which I think mm -hmm. is a nice moment because clearly Ned had some talent for this type of leadership as well. Um, huh. Supposedly. Supposedly. I mean, he did win a rebellion. Uh, he oh, was a general, mess, but, you know, hey, that was a while ago. What, what, have, in it. what have you done for me lately? Yeah, right? Uh, Come on. Uh, so she asks him, okay, so who's going to command each side? He says, I'm going to go with the cavalry, which he thinks, okay, that's very brave. You're going with the, like more, dangerous dude, the more dangerous side. And then he says, the great John really wants to go kick the crap out of Tywin. So I'm going to give it to him, give him the honor. And this is where Kat thinks, okay, the rest of the plan was good. First it's mid a bad yeah. idea. Yep. Uh, and then she thinks to herself, and this is what you were just referencing. How do I tell Rob this is dumb without taking command away from him, without taking control of the situation? Yeah. Because it would be maybe not just as bad, but similarly bad as, you know, hugging him and kissing him and then sending him to bed in front of his lords. If all of a sudden he had to run his ideas by her every council, yeah, exactly. uh, or if he didn't trust himself without her counsel, she can't sit in the meetings with all the lords and say, actually, Rob, I disagree with you. Here's my thoughts. Uh, that's just as big of a problem. So, okay. How do we get him to this conclusion while making him feel like it was his idea? So she says, your father once told me that the great John was as fearless as in any man he had ever known. And Rob says, yeah, so you agree. It's a great idea, right? Great, we'll pay two of his fingers and he just laughed. Yeah. So Cass says, well, fearless and brave aren't the same thing. Mm -hmm. Ned was brave, but he was never fearless. He knew how to be afraid of things. And this got Rob to realize the foot are the only line of defense other than a few archers he's going to leave at Moat Caitlin between the Lannister army and the north. Uh, and so if the Great John rushes in headlong, thinking he's going to surprise Tywin and gets his ass kicked, Tywin's next move is marching towards the north. Yeah. Uh, and so he says, okay, uh, probably shouldn't be him. Uh, and Catelyn says, "Cold, you want cold cunning, not courage. Um, hinting as Rob picks up on that he wants Roose Bolton. Roose Bolton, the and flayed man. The flayed man. I'm proud of you for remembering that. Thank you. Look at you picking up on sigils. Flades. Flades indeed. Do you know what that is? Yeah, it's with okay. the X, right? Yes. Where you skin them? Yeah, you take the skin off them. Disgusting. Pretty gross. Make a nice purse that way, though. Hmm. <laughs> I, I have too many purses. Really thought I'd get more of a reaction from you on that one. I don't know. Purses are nice. Anyway, Rob says, okay, that's a plan. Let's do it. And uh, meanwhile, I'll put together an escort of men to get you home to Winterfell safely, to which Kat says no. I'm coming with you. I'm coming with you. It's time for me to go see my dad. He's sick. 
go help my brother who's surrounded by enemies, go on a river run. So there's a lot that happened in this chapter without anything actually happening. Like they a lot of conversation in a room. Yeah. It's really the, uh, the Aaron Sorkin written episode. Yeah, but nobody moved. Yeah, that's true. They there's no walk and talks. <laughs> Fair. It's no, not Sorkin at all. That's my bad. I no, this one it's it's a very theatrical. You can mm-hmm. see it being done as a as a one act, uh, as a stage play, very very easily. Um, it's very dialogue focused, very much so about the relationship between the two of them. And I think too that, it, and and right to that point is that I think it really speaks to the the changing of dynamic. This is the first time that Catelyn's back since everything has gone really to pot. She's dealing with her son in a totally new light. And we're we're watching that. What does it mean for Catelyn to, you know, be a mother, but also a consigliere to the leader? Uh, and and how does how does she kind of face that and deal with it? I, th- I thought it was very interesting and very well done. And it was it was fun to watch it. I'm excited to see their relationship continue. Although I do wonder. I can only assume that from a writing style point of view, there's a fine line and a difficult one to keep between loving mother who is there to support her son and overbearingly like conscious mother guiding her son's actions without wanting him to know kind of like secretly positively gaslighting her son. Yeah. Well, you have to wonder, you know, how long or Rob starts to get real confidence rather than her instilled confidence and she stops being listened to. She stops being relevant. Uh, And certainly watching that dynamic change in that direction would be interesting rather than her continuing to be the, the puppet master behind the scenes, directing things without Rob even noticing. Yeah. So we have those, those two options firmly before us here. Uh, I'm going to skip asking you what's coming next because this next chapter that we cover actually has further updates on the war effort mm-hmm. that seem to happen a little bit after this one. Uh, so, so we don't need direct references there. It, it's, it closely follows, but certainly follows. Uh, but with that said, would you like to take a break and get another drink before we keep moving? Oh, let's get a drink. Back with some gin and gingers. Gin and gingers. Brothers Without Banners podcast. Brothers Without Brothers. Brought to you by gin. Gin and Johns. Something. Uh, Dan, we're going to get to a character in this next chapter that we just haven't seen for a while. Yeah. And you've been missing him. I have. He's left a very small hole in your heart. Yeah, but it's a significant hole. Yeah. And only he can fill it. Hot. <laughs> uh, gin and gingers. Ooh. Uh, okay, Tyrion. It's Tyrion fourteen. Seven. Seven. Same idea. Um, similar to Catelyn, we really haven't seen Tyrion in a while. Last time we left him, he had won his trial by combat. Really, Bronn had won his trial by combat. Yeah, but it's his case. Yeah, that's true. Uh, no, no credit goes to the lawyer. It's uh, always my The client literally does not matter. Uh, it's the first thing they teach you in law school. Yeah, oh, that, uh, that's what I would have guessed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> from what I understand about lawyers. Uh, with that said, <laughs> he has won his trial by combat, which, as Catelyn was quick to point out before this trial began, if he wins, we have to let him go. Right. And now they had to let him go. He is he is dismissed with little uh, fanfare. He's basically said, "Here's the door. Get yeah, the goodbye. fuck out." And in the last chapter, Braun and him were sort of like figuring out 
well, what are we going to, how do we get out of here safely? Right. They were going through the mountains, the mountains of the moon. Exactly. Dangerous. And we knew there were raids during that as their way through, like to the veil and all of this. Uh, And Tyrion in the last chapter really had a plan. He wouldn't really share it, but we find out that he's there to make a treaty, a deal with, with these mountain folk. I don't know what you'd call it. Yeah. The plains. The, uh, the, the mountain clans. They're called. Bless you. Thank you. The mountain clans, as we find out. Uh, and that's where we leave out. Uh, we, we left him. He was out in the wilderness. Mountain clans were coming upon him, and he started to parlay with them. And now we catch him again with the mountain clans, but making his way towards basically Lannister armies. He's saying I, his deal was, I'm going to arm you guys to take over the Vale. Right. Fuck these rich people. Eat the rich. Yeah, Eat but not the us. rich. Other rich people. Eat the, well, right, not the rich. He's a real people. class trader, isn't he? Yeah. Well, I don't think he's a traitor. He's a trader. Yeah, that's true. He's like, get those rich people. Eat them. Leave Smart. us rich people alone. It's a good plan. You know what? That's how we should do it. We got to get rich, and then convince the poor people to eat other rich people, so we can Sounds get rich. Sounds like American politics. You know what? U.S.A. <laughs> U.S. Westeros. West okay that's that actually feels right yeah that feels correct I uh, with that said this chapter begins with it's it's sort of funny to say it but there's a weird comfortability that he's found with the threats of these mountain folk yeah he's aware they're of their threats now. they're gonna cut off his balls they're gonna feed him to goats his manhood and feed him to the goats feed him to the goats Dan we find ourselves really with Tyrion with these folk and they now view the Lannister army in the distance and Tyrion says um let's go and they all say well should we go let's go and he says I'm going and he kind of like yeah he he tries to go go. he tries to go he says why don't you guys wait here and I'll go without you and they say I don't know about that uh we're not going to do that we're going to come with you because you're just going to try and renege on your deal uh and so Tyrion just turns around and leaves and they can follow if they want to and speaking of sort of like class disparity, like everything that we've learned about Tyrion is that he stands by his word. We know as readers that he's he'll he'll go alone. He won't go alone, but that he's there to honor the fact that these people said, great, we're not going to kill you. Yeah, I understand it from their place, but it's fun to see them troubled by this. They what does it mean to go face to face in front of the leader of this grand army in front of them. They are poor people. They're mountain folk. Yeah, there's a lot of awe in it, just seeing the size mm-hmm. of the camp and the the expensiveness, the gaudiness of the decorations and the armor and the pavilions that people have set up. Uh, they really do notice all of that, which uh, which is, is fun to watch from the outside. I will say that there's a quote here that Tyrion thinks to himself that I really loved, is that uh, as he starts riding away... And others, and they really do start to follow him. They say, great, we're coming. Uh, He thinks to himself, that was the trouble with the clans. They had an absurd notion that every man's voice should be heard in council. So they argued about everything endlessly. Even their women were allowed to speak. Uh, The trouble with democracy. And women. And women. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Women are great. This is not a misogynist podcast, even though it's about Game of Thrones. Yeah, that's a good correction. That's actually worth noting. Just because Sansa sucks doesn't mean all women does. Do <laughs> you really do hate Sansa and Kat? This is a rough look for you. Yeah, but Arya's dope. Yeah, Cersei's dope. Okay, Cersei sets you apart. Uh, 
Arya's great, but Sansa and Kat suck is a pretty common opinion among the worst people in the fandom of this community. I get it. <laughs> I'm aiming for the middle. That's where I go. <laughs> there you go. Um, Misogynist buy shoes too, right, Michael Jordan? <laughs> I don't get any part of what you just said, oh, yeah. but I'm offended. He had a famous quote in like 96 or 98 or something. He refused to endorse the Democratic candidate for senator in North Carolina oh. and said Republicans buy shoes too. Well, they, they do, Dan. He wasn't wrong. And he's rich. <laughs> yeah. He and is. That's what you're going for. That's for sure. Um, we also have a comment that Braun is still with him. And while he is becoming less of a present character in this conversation, he is present. And I think that's just something to know. Yes. But they ride. And let me know if there's, a, I mean, like, I'm going to, this chapter is very similar to the chapter we just read. It's just from the other side. Yeah. There's a lot of. There's really only one thing worth mentioning before Tyrion gets to his conversation. What do you got? Because I know that he's basically riding into camp yeah. to announce himself, and he's bringing these clansmen with him. But his goal is to talk to whoever's the leader here, whether it's we, his father or Jamie. He's right. not sure just now. And we we very quickly learn it was Tywin. And um, the one thing that I wanted to mention is as he goes, we learn that that his father has taken the inn at the crossroads for his office. This, of course, we've seen before. This was the inn where Catelyn took where Tyrion. Taken. And on his way in, he notices a body hanging on a gibbet outside the inn with a pretty destroyed face, courtesy of the crows, but stained red teeth from the tobacco-type product she always sucked on, which was the innkeeper we met who took care of Cat so nicely that time. And he kind of wryly smiles at this and says, all I wanted was a room. You, you could have just given me the room and it would have been fine. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's it's uh, the first real casualty of somebody that we met of, of this war here. And it's notably one of the small folk. This is not somebody playing the game. It's not somebody playing the Lord's games. She wasn't even involved in that situation. And certainly she couldn't have stood up against Cat arresting Tyrion. That is a place to keep your head down if you're one of the peasants. And she got executed for it anyway. I will say it's interesting you bring this up, obviously because it's in the chapter, but like <laughs> why I usually bring up things that are in the chapter. Yeah, you you're you're I consistent on that, by the way. Uh but I like like it's a fun visual. Like, like as a reader, it's fun. Uh -huh. Okay, I can see the the ferocity of the Lannisters and the and the, and the viciousness. Really? Is this who they kill? Like, like why? It's not that how would the because she was the innkeeper where where Tyrion was taken? I, I didn't yeah. understand. It seemed kind of over the top aggressive to say how sinister Lannister is. Let's there. let's come back to this in a minute, because I think there's a hint towards it, uh, towards the end of this chapter. Um, I agree. It does feel a little bit like bad character being bad for the sake of bad. Um, but I do think that there's a little more to it from a personality perspective that helps put it into a, a clearer spot than, you know, look at the Lannisters committing atrocities. Let's root for the good guys, the Starks. Similar as Tyrion is making his way through sort of the, the, the echelons of entry, right. right? He's going from the outside to the inside. He's recognized quickly. He's obviously known as a Lannister. He stands out. Yeah. Um, but he, similar to Catelyn, has a dual purpose here. He's moving to talk with his father, understand the strategies and see what's going on. But he really is also there, and because that's a lot of what we learned from this, but he's there for the deal that he made. Right. We're here to stand up for these clansmen and 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 he, because they they didn't murder me. Right. Yeah, no, he uh, he made a deal for his life. He's gonna honor that. He's really glad that they're these the clansmen are impressed and and awed 
by uh, the Lannister stuff. Yeah. And I think that's worth like noting too. He's really glad that the more that they see, the more all they are, the more that they'll be deferential to what's about to happen. But then he uh, he gets to Tywin, who we have heard a lot about for, you know, we're we're 70 percent, 75 through this book. I'm saying it. He's he's uh, he's definitely interesting. He's super cool and badass in this scene in particular. He's got mutton chops. He does have mutton chops. We we finally meet him. And I think his physical description, which I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read, is such so in line with everything we've heard about him before and the characterizations we've gotten from him. Really, the entirety of this chapter is kind of confirmation of attitudes and reputations, attitudes towards and reputations of Tywin Lannister Mm -hmm. that we've heard from everyone else talking about him. So Tyrion, I don't know if it's him thinking to himself or just a narrator talking to us, says Tywin Lannister, Lord of Casterly Rock and Warden of the West, was in his middle 50s, yet hard as a man of 20. Even seated, he was tall with long legs, broad shoulders, a flat stomach. Jealous. His thin arms were corded with muscle. When his once thick golden hair had begun to recede, he had commanded his barber to shave his head. Lord Tywin did not believe in half measures. I want to break from the description here and just mention there was a, a ESPN host who I really enjoyed named Bomani Jones, hmm. who always used to tweet about on Twitter how, when people, athletes, celebrities, whoever it was, started to bald he would he called it they need to come home that's what he was saying (laughs) he had a shaved head himself uh he said it a lot about lebron for a while it was like it looks worse this it's time to come home so tywin lannister bomani jones one and one right there together i'll also add that dan's comment about a flat stomach is because dan's a little fatty fat rude (laughs) uh not wrong but rude um, continuing on here, he razored his lip and chin as well, but kept his side whiskers, mm. two great thickets of wiry golden hair. That Get those mutton chops. Love the muttons. Love them some chops. His eyes were a pale green flecked with gold. A fool more foolish than most had once jested that even Lord Tywin's shit was flecked with gold. Some said the man was still alive deep in the bowels of Casterly Rock. Uh, so, you know, this whole thing, hard, intense very serious, takes care of himself, does not like a joke, uh, does not believe in half measures. This all lines up perfectly with everything we've heard about him before. It does, although I do enjoy that his brother is also sitting at the table who is described as like portly and balding (laughs) and has a close cropped beard around his massive jaw. Sir Kevin needs to come home. But I think that that, that I, I do like that contrast because it's not that this is inherent in the family. It's that Tywin has made it this way. Right. That's who he is. He he demands things from himself, from those around him, and he makes it that way. Yeah, that's uh, that's such a great call. I, I also love that the first words from Tywin to Tyrion is, uh, I see the rumors of your demise were unfounded. Yes. He, not only is his description physically tight, but his mental tightness is there too. He's, he's not there for pleasant there's, reasons. There's no cat parent parental instinct no. i'm not going to run to my child and hug and clutch them and be excited they're home uh he's going to sit still and make a joke but i think too that or maybe not even a joke yeah but it seems kind of funny but i think that like what a wonderful contrast between starks and lannisters here just from their their the parental sort of perspective is that the starks are all about this honor and all about like like it should be as it shall be 
and we're going to get it there. And we're, it, like, like by by acting virtuous, we will bring virtue here. And Tywin really seems calculating. He's, yeah. you know, this is not how the world works. If you plan, you will succeed. And I'm going to plan. Right. And I think we see a lot of that in the best of ways, in a writing sense, in Tyrion as child yeah. of Tywin. Yeah, he's inherited a lot of that. And I think that we're seeing sort of like that source. Here is who led to to Tyrion. It'll yeah. be interesting to think of the Tyrion character with a father like this, uh, not a dwarf. Yeah, you know, and, and it's like I bet it would be like a Jamie, but smarter. Right. I and think it's that's like, exactly right. Isn't that incredible to think of it? That and, and I bet and I get the sense that Tyrion knows this. If I was not deformed like this, you I know, would be the favorite. I would be not only the favorite, but I would be super successful. Yeah. You do have to note uh, Tyrion has a bit of a love for hedonistic activities. We know he likes horrors. We know he likes drinking. Neither of those really seem in Tywin's palate here, although we don't know him all that well yet. Uh, so maybe there are some areas where he has inherited a lot of Tywin and, and maybe some areas where he has broken against him. And uh, maybe it's compensation. Do. Yeah. With that said, I, Tyrion and Tywin have what feels, and I feel weird saying it this way, it feels written as if it should be a uh, sniping relationship. They're sniping at one another a little bit. It doesn't come off completely that way. Tywin seems uninterested in Tyrion, and Tyrion seems pretty uninterested in Tywin. So for me, it feels like Tyrion is trying to take those shots, and Tywin is is just not engaged, just, not just uninterested. Uh, and whether that comes from like this is beneath me and I don't work like this, or he just doesn't give a shit, you know, like it's unclear why it's happening that way. But it almost feels like like a playground thing where where Tyrion is trying mm. to get a reaction out of him, and Tywin won't give I, it to him. I like that. I will say that from the opposite perspective, almost. Tywin makes a wonderful sort of sharp pointed comment of your brother Jamie would never have meekly submitted to capture at the hands of a woman to which Tyrion responds that's one way we differ Jamie and I he's taller as well you may have noticed it seems like back to what we were just saying Tyrion probably would have been the favorite but he's not because of deformity and he likes to remind his father that it's unfair to judge him as such yeah yeah. And, you know, he's right. Uh, and he's certainly trying to throw that in his face. But it seems clear that this has been a mainstay of his life with Tywin, that Tywin openly dislikes, hates, doesn't respect whatever the correct word might be, Tyrion, because of his disability. Um, and we we have this note from within Tyrion's head, whenever his father's eyes were on him, he became uncomfortably aware of all his deformities and shortcomings. So you think back to that advice he gave to John way back super early in this book, make it your armor and it can never hurt you. That is something that he's not able to do clearly with Tywin. I like that he was also described as waddling everywhere now in front of his father, even right. though we have never really heard him as a waddling before. It's like, almost as though that that kind of description comes up because now he's noticing the way he walks. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Much more so than he would in, in other contexts. I'll say that the chapter, and, and, and I want to get into some of the specifics, and I'll let you talk about some of the specifics, but there's a couple things that are happening all at the same time throughout this chapter. This is not a long chapter, and it's not a very exciting chapter, mm -hmm. in my opinion. It's another uh, office chapter. You were right in it, the description. It, it is, but with that said, we have a lot of exposition. We're learning about, in the same way, it's reflective. It's a foil to what we just saw with Rob and Catelyn. Exactly. We're hearing exactly the same sort of battle plans, but seeing it from the Lannister point of view. And I'll be honest, they're dominating. 
The fact is, is that they feel very comfortable and very confident about what it is that's going on. And they feel like, and it seems like they're winning. Yeah. While Rob Stark has plans for a counteroffensive, Tywin's killing it right now. They really were prepared for what was about to happen. Probably because Sansa went to Cersei at some point and said, we're trying to escape. All this stuff is happening. And he, she really blew it. Yeah. Like, and and even before son. that, you know, we had the Lannisters getting ready for things. Mm-hmm. We heard about them raising armies long before the Starks did. Part of that was Ned being slow to the game and really believing in Robert and believing in the system. Part of that was disruption in their communication. Ned did send Cat back, call the banners, and then she did not get home in That's a right. comfortable time frame. So some of it is kind of outside their control as well. But all of it's combining to result in this mess. Um, I do want to take a moment here just to ask you, you know, how does it feel to read about the Lannisters dominating in militarily in this sense? It, it's, I guess I'm saying this maybe more from a, from a aspirational point of view. For me, reading this book for the first time, I, I still remember this moment. The Starks are so obviously coded as protagonists, like you were just saying mm-hmm. about the, the the violence and villainy of the Lannisters towards this innkeeper. Uh, they are, the Starks are the main characters. They're the ones we're meant to be rooting for. At the same time, Tyrion is also a main character, a point of view character, who is very much so coded as a protagonist in the uh, uh, Campbellian sense, uh, the, the hero's journey sort sure, of sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And so we're here in Tyrion's mind, in this place where he has to fight and is on a side very firmly. um, And yet his side is fighting against and beating the crap out of our supposed heroes. Is there any sort of whiplash from that? Is there any any sort of thought process that comes from it or are you just you like Tyrion and most of the Starks annoy you you know it's it's funny (laughs) like are you just full-on rooting for the Lannisters (laughs) well you know in in the funniest of ways the answer in the most simplest of senses is yes I I am I am never excited to be manipulated into cheering for a side right and I will say, and I'm having a lot of fun with this book, but I will say that like I can feel, and and I realize the book's been around for a while. You know, it, it's hard to obviously this. I'm reading the book for the first time, but the book has been part of the the you know universal conversation for a long time. Absolutely, and yeah. it's hard to not be aware of a lot of these things. With that said, because of maybe because of that, maybe not. But while I can feel the writing saying Starks are virtuous, Lannisters are not. At the same time, Lannisters are prepared and really strategic, while Starks are not. The whiplash is not there. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Starks have been set up to lose since the beginning. Everything has been building to this loss after loss. You know, the writing's been on the walls. And maybe this is because I'm reading it 10 years, you know, 15 years after. No, I get what you're saying, though. But, you know, I'm, I'm, the reason I'm more, and I say this kind of tongue in cheek, but more team Lannister than team Stark is because they're so Starks are so virtuous it's of course they're gonna lose because they wouldn't make sense any other way if they didn't like like the story couldn't there's no there's no cliffhanger here for me uh-huh. uh it's not well, i mean usually in these types of in in fantasy books the good guys win i mean i'm i'm reading another book right now that's it's been okay it hasn't been my favorite thing in the world but it is very much written in line with the tropes. It's trying to redo some things and reimagine some stuff, put them into a new context. I keep waiting 
for the other shoe to drop because I'm used to the style of literature where the good guys don't win and things are bad yeah. and all of that. But I'm pretty much at the end here and the good guys are winning and the other shoe never dropped. Yeah. And like, you know, that that kind of is the way it normally goes as much as we've been trained to expect the opposite in recent decades. That's fair. But I think that at the same time, something interesting that seems intentional from George R. R. Martin, and this goes back to the comment that you were saying earlier, right? From the quotes that he said about like, I want to see this from different perspectives here is it's almost like he decided to start his story three books earlier than most stories start. Uh -huh. He set up the fall of the hero so that the hero can rise. I don't know anything about what's going to happen in the next books, but I assume that there this will come to a conclusion where Starks of some kind will come out on top, where the heroism of valor and virtue will shine through the evil of you know, the common day commercialism uh -huh. of, you know, I'm winning, I'm making money, we're making money for You just people. think it's a long way away. I do think so. And I think that like, like if we were to start, and I don't say this for real, right? But like start at book three, it would be, you know, the evil Lannisters who, pro who said gold is the standard for everything. We're in charge and there's greater things that we have to care about. And we're going to fight against that and rebel. And those who understand that there's a greater reason for living shall be virtuous. Yeah, I guess this is the right time to, to try and explain what I meant with the whiplash aspect, because I mm -hmm. think the pitfall that you're missing in your analysis here is Tyrion. We do not have a situation where it's the virtuous Starks against the villainous Lannisters. Tyrion has issues to him that we've discussed, but is very much so a protagonist in the classical sense. And so to have a protagonist or one protagonist and a group of protagonists on opposite sides of a violent military conflict where people are going to die and someone is going to win, I think already kind of pushes it out of the realm of what you're talking about. And I maybe there's so. maybe there's just a little more to it in terms of what the motivations are and and, and what the conclusions are. Uh, and you know, who knows? Maybe we'll get a stark villain at some point. Maybe maybe Rickon is secretly evil. Yeah, uh, <laughs> maybe I could see that potentially happening, like in the future, just from a stylistic sense. Not right. that there's anything to say that, but I will say that, like, that you did say Rickon's a vampire last week. I, I, you know what this? Yeah, well, I stand by that. <laughs> but I, you know what this reminds me of is there's a part. This is such a strange comparison. But in Wes Anderson's Steve Zissou and the Life Aquatic. Okay, that is a strange comparison. There's a part where uh, Steve Zissou is being held captive and the rest of the boat, or, or somebody's being held captive and the rest of the boat has to go and save, or I think it's the 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 banker okay. is being held captive. Uh, and the rest of the boat has to go and save this banker from this these pirates. And as they're, they're they've saved the banker and they're leaving, they go to shoot somebody on the beach and the banker says, don't do it. He's a friend. And sure enough, it's some kid that had helped him get some communication out or whatever. It's a very short. Uh -huh. But that's how I see Tyrion here. He's on the losing side. I think it, this is where I'm thinking like high level. He's not a protagonist. He's just the goodest of the bad guys. And so at the end, hopefully he'll be saved for some reason or he'll uh -huh. get some sort of permission. But it's not that he's a protagonist by any means. He's just taking the protagonist role of the antagonist. He is an antagonist with protagonist features. All right. All right. I see you sorting things into your boxes here. And I really like it because you know who that makes you? A boxer? No. You you love the songs, Michael. You, you think, love the you songs. Think the good guys win at the end and the and bad guys. I do. You and Sansa. It's beautiful. Well, I don't That's mean to who be this you guy, are. Dan.
but like I feel like the last book hasn't even been written yet. That's a good point. And I might be right. Yeah. We'll have so to see. you don't know. Take your <laughs> self-righteousness and your knowledge of all the other books okay. back to bed. I like Sansa. So uh, that was you not like an insult Sansa? for me. You like You're Sansa? You're only interpreting it as an insult because you're oh, dead to me. me. Sansa. The worst. Should we keep moving with this conversation? You're a right cuckold. Eric Cuckold, I call thee that. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, what are we even drinking right now? Is this gin or tequila? It's gin. Great. It's in the same cup as the tequila, though. Yeah, it all tastes the same. Anyway, the point is, is that they're talking about strategy. And it's funny because they hit some of the same notes that we've heard in the last chapter, from, but from different perspectives. Yeah, Tarion asks for an update on the war. And so we hear the same stuff, except now instead of losing, we're winning. Yeah. And not only are they winning, but they... Tywin seems very well in understanding and control of the situation. While we've heard Rob saying how he's going to react to things, Tywin is saying how he's prepared for things and why they're doing so well. And I really like that. I thought it just speaks so well to the strength of the Lannisters right now. Yeah, absolutely. So this update here starts with a note that uh, that they were able to cross the border into the Riverlands, specifically because Edmure had left really small groups of troops across the entire border so as to protect the whole, th- whole thing and keep the people safe, which I mentioned because Ned had actually had this exact thought mm-hmm. uh, a while back when hearing about the situation. He was like, Edmure is too noble. He's going to spend all his time and spread all of his resources instead of actually concentrating a real army somewhere that will be able to compete. And it turns out that was correct. Uh, Edmure got his ass kicked. Uh, everybody crossed the borders, and that Jamie crushed Edmure at Riverland, uh, River Run, right outside it. And now they're besieging the castle with Edmure as a captive. Um, the rest of the lords scattered and went back to their castles. And Kevin and Tywin have kind of been moving around, picking them off. We hear Raven Tree fell at once. Lady Went yielded Harrenhal for want of men to defend it. Sir Gregor burnt out the Pipers and the Brackens. So all that's left now is the Malisters and Seaguard, who we have not heard of before, uh, mm-hmm. but are, are simply on their own, not enough to be a threat. And the phrase, who, similar to the note we got last chapter, uh, Tywin says they're not going to get involved because they only get involved when they're sure to be on the winning side. And right now the winning side is us. So we really don't have to worry about them. The only risk is about the errands and the Starks starting to involve themselves in things. I like that. There's also this comment about Starks, which is that like a sword is only as good as once it's like, it's only good once it's been tempered. Yes. Rob Stark has yet to be tempered and this is his time to lose. Yeah. Uh, Tyrion also explains that the Aarons will not be getting involved. So very similar Mm -hmm. once again to Kat last chapter. Uh, And yeah, like you just said, Tywin is is confident that Rob as an amateur is not going to be much of a threat or much of a problem. And they're just, they're really not going to have to worry about that. He does specifically note that he wants to deal with Rob quickly. Uh, This actually happens in a few pages so that he can be prepared for Stannis. So this is part of getting ahead of things, um, which I think is another complicating factor to your analysis is that we have a lot of other players on the board. So even if this does result and ultimately, with the Lannisters losing, uh, you know, the Starks are not the only ones taking a shot at them. And it's not necessary that they're uh, that the enemy of their enemy is, in fact, their friend. Mm-hmm. We don't know where Stannis or somebody like Lysa, uh, like what their plans are, what they're doing with, with the things they're raising. Or Renly also, we know is out there. We find out that uh, Tyrion finds out for the first time that King Robert is dead. Yes. And he's pretty taken aback by that. He didn't 
didn't he, he didn't expect that and he realizes very quickly immediately even it's not joffrey who's in charge it's right cersei who's in charge now and we've been we've been hearing a lot of that from a lot of people everybody mm-hmm. kind of has that reaction uh which makes me wonder how true it is but certainly it is the reaction of a lot of the smarter people cat Tyrion, uh up in winterfell they have the same conversation as well um I think it's interesting also that he learns that Ned is captive before he learns Robert is dead. And mm-hmm. so that's the question he asks, wait, how is Robert okay with any of mm. this? Uh, and the answer is, turns out he doesn't have many opinions at all. Yeah, that's right. He's gone. Um, with all this conversation happening about strategy and what the situations are, the fact is, is that it's a real foil to the chapter we just read. And in a great way, we heard from the Stark perspective of what's going on in their strategy. We understand the strength of the Lannisters and what they're doing and how they're taking care of business. I will say, as a reader right now, Lannisters seem to be killing it. Yeah. They seem ahead of the game. They seem to know what they're doing. They seem efficient in a way that Rob is not ready to be yet, which I understand. But I'm curious to see where that goes. Yeah. We uh, we have one final moment in this set piece, which is Tyrion had left his clansmen outside mm-hmm. eating, and they decided it's time for them to it's get It's time involved. to be heard. They uh, they bang down the door and enter. Uh, Kevin reaches for a sword and Tywin stops him and mm-hmm. very calmly says, uh, Tyrion, you should introduce your guests. You're being very rude. Um, Tyrion introduces them to everybody. Not a ton worth noting in the introductions, except he lands on Bronn at the end and says he's already changed sides twice in the short time I've known him. You and he ought to get on famously, father. If I was Braun, I would have been pissed at that, by the way. Like, fucking fuck for you, dude. Like, are you kidding me right now? Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty obnoxious. Uh, I guess as long as he's getting paid, he doesn't really give yeah, a shit. Yeah, I guess so. But, like, <laughs> I, you know, you're being int- introduced in front of, like, the head of the family who's dominating right now. Yeah, this guy's I would not want to be known as, like, don't trust me. Yeah. No, that's fair. That's rough. Um... Tyrion introduces all of all of the people, though, mm-hmm. uh, explains the, the whole things. situation. And at this point, they once again get interrupted. A messenger pops in and says, hey, Rob is moving south down the King's Road. Uh, Tywin is pumped. He does not show this openly, but Tyrion knows the signs. Mm-hmm. And he orders everybody to get ready. The scouts are supposed to harass Rob and pull him further south. Uh, and meanwhile, the Lannister army is going to ride north, just as Rob predicted. And he's going to go handle them as soon as he can, take care of this young boy so he can turn to more important issues like Stannis. Tywin then asks the clansmen, uh, come with us. Come with us. And we'll pay you just like my son promised. And they say, why would we do something to get a promise we've already gotten. Uh, we're not going to serve you twice on the deal you've already made. Tywin says, oh, that's okay. You must be afraid. The Northerners are very scary, which uh, works perfectly. And they all announce that they're coming with him. But Tyrion has to come with them. He, uh, They, they want to keep an eye on him until he pays up. And if he doesn't pay up, they're going to kill him. So he has to ride off to battle with the rest of the army here. And that's how the chapter closes. And I will add to that, by the way, because something that happened earlier in the conversation is that Tywin at one point points to Tyrion and says, oh, glad you're alive. We've got a great mission for you. It's a nothing mission with like 50 men that you can take and go clean up stuff. And it's actually the clansmen and their demands that lead to Tyrion being sort of brought along to where the actual fighting is happening. Yeah, which uh, is is a good and a bad thing considering his physical abilities. Maybe a battle is not the best place for him to be. But a leadership position, you know, maybe this is a good way to get Tywin more invested in him. 
I want to revisit just from the discussion with the innkeeper because we didn't do it while going through this. We got a lot of references over the course of these conversations to the Lannister honor and the honor of the family and that being a central focus for Tywin. He says very specifically, and this is something Tyrion had mentioned in previous chapters, and now we hear it out of Tywin's mouth, that he started a war to protect the honor of the family. People cannot seize my son, cannot seize a Lannister and expect to get away with it. And so from that perspective, it strikes me less as pure villainy for villainy's sake when he kills the innkeeper, but more as a deterrence, a sign on the door. If you stand by and watch this happen to a Lannister, you will die a bloody, horrible death. So next time, I don't care if you think, oh, I shouldn't challenge the Starks, their nobility. I... I'm not important enough, people will say, well, no, if I do that, Tywin Lannister will come down and cut my head off. Uh, and that seems much more in his vein than just cruelty for cruelty's sake. Sure. He doesn't seem like he does anything for the fun of it, even be mean or horrible. Uh, so so I, I just wanted to note that kind of gap there, that difference between uh, what it had maybe looked like on first glance and what we seem to be getting, because I think that gives us just a little bit more insight into Tywin's motives and motivations as a person. I like that, but I will say that I don't think I'm terribly surprised by it. I think that like, and and this goes back to what we were saying earlier about guerrilla warfare and who's weaker and who's not. Uh, unfortunately, when you have he who fights for strength to, 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 to display strength versus he who fights to display honor, strength often is stronger. Yeah. And I think that that's what we're seeing here. And over and over again, for many, many in chapters, is that is that the Lannisters are like, whether we like it or not, they are the type of family to say, you come at us, we're coming back a hundredfold. Right. There's no question here. This is not for diplomacy. We're here to demand your, your fealty to us in certain ways. I just think it's interesting that, you know, putting aside the preparation and the, you know, the, the ability to make the trains run on time mm -hmm. of the Lannisters, which I agree with you, I think is both important and very interesting from a story perspective. But we've talked about honor so much over the course of this book, and it has almost universally been with respect to the Starks, and mm -hmm. especially with Ned. And we're seeing here a different type of honor, uh, a different con conception of honor, uh, different in some ways and not in others, the kind of external honor, the idea of honor being rooted in how others see you. And we saw some of that from Ned. We're now seeing that kind of manifested 100% from Tywin. And it's interesting to see that contrasting approach to does it have a moral dimension or is it entirely mm. about reputation and about legacy and, and tywin seems to be much more of that latter more realist perspective more cynical perspective yeah, for which sure is, is interesting for sure. i agree i like that a lot yeah i think that's a great perspective so uh so where do you think we're headed from here we've got the infantry marching marching south as rob predicted tywin seems to think this is where rob is and what rob is doing and is marching off to challenge him is, yeah. is rob's plan gonna work is he gonna sneak up on jamie without any issues well i think i i can't help thinking about it from a literary perspective and i think that wars is one of those things where anything is possible i uh, the, the the stage is set we talked last episode about you know this is we're we're at a point in the book once again of the chessboard being reset. Things are being put in motion. What's going to happen? We're getting the sense of the strategy of what's about to happen. That said, I could see the next four chapters being an unbelievable victory for the Starks. I could see it also being all the Starks died. 
Uh-huh. Uh, and, and I don't know. Right. So with that said, I think the next steps, I, I, I'm more interested right now in the characters that are not in the midst of this war. Sansa, weirdly enough, I'm curious to see where that's going. Joffrey, Cersei, uh, Arya. Mm-hmm. Uh, those that are the more key players in the actual battling, including Ned Stark, who I know is a prisoner and is not going right. anywhere. I'm less interested in them right now like yeah. like it's it's the nuances that i'm interested in the war is going to go and the chapter you know if you want more office chapters i get it no <laughs> let us be clear i will never want more office chapters but i will say that that the if the next three chapters are let's say rob chapters and Tyrion chapters and they're all similar to this yeah i assume it'll be more like boardroom chats and they'll talk about the strategy and who's winning who's losing yeah but i could see it going 50 50 either way from a written perspective right also uh, being just battle scene yeah maybe yeah and and that's great and fun to watch i suppose but the intrigue is happening at at the diplomatic level yeah and i'm curious about that so so i don't have a good answer i don't have a no that's fair i've got great news for you mm-hmm. we're reading two chapters next week sansa five Ugh. first of them okay so you get exactly what you asked just for. what i asked for uh, be careful what you what you wish for, and then uh, we're going to Ned fifteen. Is another chapter. Ned? It has been. Hang on, I'm actually going to count this. Fifteen, Dan. It's you just no said it. no. Eddard fourteen was episode twenty one. This right now is episode twenty six, maybe twenty five. Twenty five. So it has been four episodes since we last saw Ned. But Ned sucks. Well, it's Sansa and Ned. Yeah, it's Sansa and Ned. <laughs> Not only is it Sansa and Ned, it's Ned presumably in a jail cell. How is this so good, but so awful at the same time? So glad you're having the correct experience. You're the of it. worst. Well, this was fun. Uh, and I'm excited to talk about the next ones. Let's go. All right, let's get there. That's all for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing two chapters, A Game of Thrones Sansa 5 and Eddard 15. If you enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast so other people can find us and tell us your feedback or thoughts as a review on any podcast app of choice or on Twitter at Bros with Banners. Thanks, as always, for listening.